Greetings to each one of you in Jesus' name. I wouldn't want to preach if we didn't have the good book. I would not want to preach if we didn't have a text. People can get up and they can run their mouth for a long time on hobby horses. And maybe some of us as preachers do that at times too. But you know what? We have the good book and we have a new text, a new emphasis each evening. And it's a joy to be together being washed by the water of the word. Yes, greetings to each one of you. Glad each one can be here tonight. We've been looking at some memory verses in Titus chapter 2. And so if you care to go to those, or if you know them by now, you are welcome to say them without looking. I found out today from someone that this congregation has learned these verses before, and so this is a good review. Let's stand together. Let's read Titus 2, the whole thing tonight, Titus 2, 11 through 15. Begin. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed appearance glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority let no man despise thee. Verse 11, verse 12 again, begin. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Does anyone have a testimony tonight of how they have lived godly in the midst of ungodliness today. Did your ungodly neighbor see you drive into the parking lot here tonight and realize that your aim is to be godly? When he drives by your house, does he know that you have the desire to be a godly family? All right, you may be seated. Monday night, we looked at the area of trust. And when I was entitling that message, I said, I need to have a title, Where is Your Trust? or Trust in God? And got thinking, maybe just the word trust to have our minds go to where we are trusting. And so we talked about God and how big he is what our view of God is, whether he's a big God to us, whether he's a caring God, or whether he's a God that is kind of foreign to us. We talked about confidence in Jesus last night and following him. I don't know about you, but my faith has found a resting place in Jesus. There's no other name given under heaven 
by which we can be saved. And we have found the name Jesus to be precious. Him as a person to be our Lord and Savior, to be our constant guide. Tonight, I'd like to look at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, at the man Zacchaeus. We don't know more about Zacchaeus and what is given in these verses, but we have some evidence of change in this man's life. And so I've entitled the message, The Conversion of Zacchaeus. Have you ever seen an older man who's lived his life and he got to the bottom of himself and his life turned around? Have you ever seen someone who was into all kinds of things and they were truly converted? Think back on your own life and ask the question, what was I like before I was a Christian? Was I a thief? Was I an ungodly man with my mouth? Did I look at the wrong things? Did I read the wrong things? Did I treat people in a dishonest way? What was I like before I was a Christian? Do I need to tell you? Brothers and sisters, I might have been all those things, but it's under the blood. That's who I used to be. That's not who I am now. That's because we've been converted. Let's look at Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation. Come to this house. For so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, it sounds like Jesus was the other side of the Jordan River. Do you have a mental picture of Israel tonight? I'm a visual learner, okay? So let's just draw a line in the crease here, and let's come over here and draw another line down like this, and let's say that's the Jordan River. And let's say we have the Dead Sea here, and up there is the Sea of Galilee, and he went across the Jordan River. Chapters earlier, it says that. He went over there, which is not Israel territory. Yeah, some of the, the tribes were there earlier, but as far as Israel, Israel at that time, it was over here. But he went over there to preach to people. 
And if I have my timeline right, I'd like to be corrected if this is wrong and somebody knows differently. But as I was looking at that today, Jesus came across the Jordan River, and he came through at Jericho, and he was on the way to Mary and Martha who were grieving over Lazarus. Remember, it took him four days to get there, right? I have to be honest with you. I never knew this before. I think I'm right. I did all the checking I could between the Gospels, and I think I'm right. Jesus was over here on this side of the Jordan River, and here he is. He's coming to Jericho, passing through at a city that is below sea level. The Dead Sea lies 1,296 feet below sea level. When we were in Israel, there was a plane company that would give you a ride, just like they give you rides over Niagara Falls. And they'd give you a ride down over the Dead Sea, and then they'd give you a certificate and said, you flew below sea level. <laughs> I did not spend the money for that. But it was below sea level, and Jericho is a little bit higher than the Dead Sea, but it's still below sea level. The lowest city on earth, a city that in the Old Testament said was cursed. No man was supposed to build on that city, but people did build on that city. And here was a place that was a city of palms. Here was a place that was city, a city that people came to for, quote, vacation and for business. It was a place there were a lot of people passing through, and Zacchaeus is the tax collector there. Now, you know what happens Wherever you can get some tax money, you get it, right? And he did that. He was under the Roman government, and the Roman government said, you know, we're going to give you the responsibility to collect from the people the money that we need to run Israel and into the bigger kitty of the Roman government. Now, here we go with this problem. The tax collector was not really accountable to too many people. And so he could overcharge on the tax, and he could pocket some of the money. People don't do that today in Virginia, do they? Never heard of that, did you? Where people kept some of their own of the money that they collected, the tax money. But that's what was happening with the tax collectors. And Jesus comes by that way on his way up to Jerusalem, which is above sea level, way up on the mountain. Okay, 3,000 feet above sea level is where Jerusalem is. He's headed up there. But remember, he's stopping at Bethany first. He's stopping at Bethany because there is Mary and Martha grieving over Lazarus. Here we have that Jesus is coming through Jericho, this place that was never supposed to be rebuilt. The curse was placed upon it. And here Zacchaeus is, questioning his life. And he climbs up into a sycamore tree. I don't think if Jesus came by, I would have climbed up into a tree. But what does this scripture say? He climbed up because he was a little man. A small man of stature. I asked the question tonight, and you think about it through the sermon, how big was Zacchaeus? Now, I'm not talking about stature. Till we get to the end of the story, how big was Zacchaeus really? Big man. He is a big man. He became a man of God. 
a man that did the hard stuff, that was willing to go and make restitution for what had been wrong. He was a big man in the sense of being faithful to God. Well, Jesus entered into Jericho, and he's going with a crowd of people with him. And here's a man named Zacchaeus. That's a Jewish name, so we don't believe this was a Roman man. We don't believe this was a Greek man. This was a Jewish man. But in order for a Jewish man to become a tax collector, he needed to lose friends. In fact, he probably was not even allowed in the synagogues, in the Jewish synagogues. In fact, if you became a tax collector and you were part of the synagogue, the religious system of the day, you were excommunicated. You know why? Because you were in cahoots with the government that had enslaved you, which was the Roman government. You were collecting money to help keep you as a nation enslaved. That doesn't feel very good. But here he is, a little man, and he comes and he climbs up into a tree in hopes of catching a view of this man who he's heard about. This man that maybe, just maybe, he can get some perspective from. It's obvious that all the wealth that he had was not bringing everything that he needed. It's obvious that he was a man searching for something more. Why wasn't he at his home sitting in his easy chair? Why did he climb the sycamore tree? Because there was a need in his life. There was something going on in his life. And he came and he climbed up in there. So he was a hated man. He was a sinner. And he knew it. I taught school for 15 years or so. And one day a girl came to me. And she said, Mr. Eby, I'm going to graduate in a few weeks. And a while back, I cheated on one of your quizzes. And if you need to withhold the diploma from me, you may do it. What was happening there? Another year, I got a note at the office. And this person said, I am sorry. But I went to the nurse's room, and I stole some cough drops one day. Now, we sold cough drops for five cents a piece. Why? Because if we didn't sell them, people would come, can I have a cough drop? I got a sore throat. And we'd be going through loads of cough drops. So you had to have a nickel to get a cough drop. But she says, in this note, I went to the nurse's office. Nobody was there. I took a cough drop, and I am sorry. Now, that immediately drew a response from me, a response that says, you are forgiven. God bless you for your sensitivity. The conscience was at work, just like I told the, the girl that said that she, she lied in her, or she cheated in the quiz. Immediately told her she is forgiven. God bless her for that sensitivity. Zacchaeus had a conscience that was at work here. It's obvious that he was under conviction. It's obvious that he was at a place where he needed some answers for his life. And Jesus comes by, and Jesus stops at the tree, 
and looks up and sees this little man up there. What did Jesus know about this man? Everything. Everything. There was not a thing that wasn't hid. He knew his height, whether it was four foot eight, whatever it was. He knew his thoughts. He knew his stealing. He knew his conscience was at work. He knew he was, well, he had him treed, didn't he? <laughs> and Jesus said to him, come down. Come down out of that tree. Now, if you were Zacchaeus, and you're one of the most hated men of the time, and you knew you were a sinner, you were a person who would have some question about coming down and facing the crowd that was with Jesus. It would seem to me, anyway, and we're just drawing some conclusions there, but here he is being told, come down. So Zacchaeus climbs down out of that tree very, very slowly. Is that what it says? He said, uh, you know, I want to, Jesus said, I want to come to your house. Uh, he said, make haste and come down, for today I must bide at thy house. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to your house. I just don't want you to come down out of the tree. I'm going to go to your house. Make haste and come down. What's the next verse say? He came down slowly? No, it says he came down with haste. Why did he come down with haste? Because he knew that here was a person that took interest in him, that cared about him as he was, who was calling him and giving him something, offering him something, his time, first of all, offering him something to fill that void that was in his life. It says he made haste, and he came down and received him joyfully. Is your conscience at work? I'm convinced there are people today that have seared their conscience to the point where not much of anything bothers them. Until there's a Christian that knocks on their door and says, do you know Jesus? Or is there anything I could pray with you about? I get callers every day that ask me if they'll go to heaven or hell. I first ask them, do you believe there's a God? Some say, no, I don't believe there's a God. Well, if you don't believe in a God... You probably don't believe in hell. I think I said that Monday night, didn't I? The reality is that there's people that have a conscience awakened when they see a Christian who is living out the faith. And we don't do it perfectly. We fail in so many ways. All of us are still human. But when people see that there is a desire to serve God and to hold up his word as the guide of life, their consciences work. 
Now, can you imagine what was all running through Zacchaeus' mind as they trudged off to his house? I don't know how far they had to go. Maybe it wasn't very far. Piers and Zacchaeus lived there in Jericho, so we don't know how far it was. But they went to Zacchaeus' house, and I think as they got in the door, Zacchaeus already realized that Jesus knew everything about him. And I imagine he'd probably saying, you know about that money that I have underneath the bed, right? You know about what I stole from Tom, Dick, and Harry? You know what I've done religiously or not done religiously? Jesus says, yes, I know all about that. But I came to see you because there's a different way. There's a better way. Can you imagine the love and the compassion that Jesus showed as he came there into that house? He says, I want to sit down with you. I don't care who you were, but I'm going to tell you who you can become. And Zacchaeus gets a brightness in his eyes as he realizes there's forgiveness that can be granted. His confrontation with Jesus is a point of, of change, a dividing line between the old life and the choice of a new life. I don't know how old Zacchaeus was. It doesn't really matter. I was in revival meetings. There was an 85-year-old man sitting in the congregation. And he sat night after night after night. He'd been in the church 40 years. I'm sorry, 40 years ago he was in the church. He was no longer in the church. But he'd come back for revival meetings. He'd been a member of that church. But he got disgruntled and he, he left. But he was there night after night after night. God was speaking to that man. And Sunday morning when I got to the back of the church, I greeted him. And I said something that I've never said to an old man before. I shook his hand and I said, do you want to be known by your grandchildren and your children as a bitter old man? That's what I said. He thanked me for the message and he went home, but that night he was the first person back to the church. He wanted to talk to the minister of the church before the service. And after the sermon was preached that night, he stood up and he said he wants to confess his bitterness and what was wrong in his life and to make a new start. And the church tells me that two months after that happened, he was taken back in as a member of the church, a repentant man, 85 years. I don't know how old Zacchaeus was. It don't matter, but we all have to have that time of change, that time of conversion. That time of saying, I am sorry, and I aim 
to understand how this has displeased God, and I am choosing to go a different direction. I don't know whether Zacchaeus cried, whether he was sorry or not. When I was a young boy, we had a visiting minister. And with him came some people. And the one guy was 16 or 17 years old. And he was bragging to us after church that he got stopped for speeding three times in one day. Now, I don't know if that would happen today because of all the technology, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about prior to 2000. The 1900s I'm talking about. <laughs> but the reality was he wasn't truly sorry. He wasn't truly repentant. He was sorry he had these fines to pay. But if he was truly convicted that he had done what's wrong, he would not have gotten stopped for speeding the, the two times after the first time. But this man was bragging about that, and he was not truly repentant. Judas came back from betraying Jesus, and he was sorry that he had done it. But he did not repent to the fullest. He could have come back. He could have found forgiveness. Peter betrayed Jesus too. Denied him three times. He came back. Look what his life was like. He was a firebrand. You talk about setting a woodpile on fire. He was a piece of kindling wood, wasn't he? He set people on fire with his excitement about the risen Savior. Well, Zacchaeus knew that his heart was deceitful. He had done what was wrong. I believe he felt sorrow, maybe even cried. I believe he understand. He understood this is not the way to live. He had this mental knowledge of how this has dishonored God. And then he had a decision to make. And the decision was, Jesus, I'm going to go your way. When we say that, brothers and sisters, there's going to be a change that your neighbors are going to know and my neighbors are going to know when we said, I am repentant, I understand what is, what's wrong in my life, and I am going to go God's way. And by his grace, I will. His confrontation with Jesus resulted in some change in his life. Sin separated him from God, but repentance reunited him. That's always the case. And the Bible says there's joy in heaven when that happens. The angels are rejoicing when there is repentance. I'd like to have seen that. Maybe if we die before the world is over, we'll get to see some of that. The rejoicing of the angels, you know, when people turn their heart over to the Lord. But the Bible says it, and I believe it. And Zacchaeus stood up after he had talked with Jesus, 
and he said unto him, you know what, Lord? I'm going to do something to show that I'm truly changed. I'm going to make restitution for everything I can make restitution for. And that's what a Christian does. He makes restitution when things have gone wrong. He shows people that the power of God is within his life. He doesn't treat his sin lightly and say, well, that's, I don't need to do anything. Yeah, it's forgiven. I don't need to do anything. But he needed to go on and make restitution. And he says here, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Why did he say that? I don't know whether it was $5,000. I don't know whether it was $100,000. It doesn't matter. He says, we're cutting it in half, and I'm going to give to the poor. I was in the airport the other day, and a man was at the gate begging for money to have a hotel room. And people started pulling out $20 bills and giving to this guy. He needed $110 and so many cents, I think it was. And I said, well, these unsaved people are pulling out their wallet. I better pull mine out, too. And I gave him some money. And then he said, I got enough. There were still people standing there giving him money. He says, I got enough. That was honorable, I thought. Could have kept on gathering it. Give to the poor. Zacchaeus was convinced that he had done wrong by the poor. Maybe many hardships to the poor because of overcharging them for the taxes. I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him four times the amount. Now, where did he get that? He got that in the Old Testament, where it says if you stole somebody's ox, you needed to repay fourfold. So here we have a man that is saying, I am going to make restitution. Whatever it takes, I am going to make restitution. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Restitution, when you're convicted about something, taking care of the things that are past, like that little note about the cough drop. That's such a little thing. But brothers and sisters, that's such a big thing. We're about as big as what we're willing to make restitution for. I shot a blue heron instead of a turkey in turkey season. That's a problem. That's a federal offense. $10,000 fine. Well, no, it's $15,000. I gave this story a few years after it happened, and a man met me at the back, and he said, Dale, it's not $10,000. I checked on my phone while you were preaching, and it's now $15,000. It's a federal offense. I, I was studying for sermons, and my sons came in and said, Dad, there's turkeys in the field. You think we could get them before 
the season closes. So I said, sure, let's go. So three boys and a dad go out. You don't usually drive turkey like you drive deer, but it was the end of the day. Three of us went in the woods, and the one boy went around the field to try to get those turkeys to leave the field and go into the woods. I was one that went into the woods, and immediately in the woods, there's a turkey, I thought. I couldn't figure how they got there that fast, but they were there. It was way down in a ravine. It was too far to shoot. But you know, he's looking right at me, so I'll shoot. So I aimed a little high and shot, and he went right down. But when I got down through that ravine, I found out this was not a turkey. This was a species I'd never killed before. When I went out the woods, my son said, who shot? I said, I did. Did you get something? Yep. Where is it? I says, we need to make a trip to the game warden. When we went to the game warden, I didn't know what to expect. But he said to me, he said, uh, Dale, he knew I was a preacher. He said, uh, I've never had a preacher in the corner before, but I got one now. <laughs> but he said, you're forgiven. I could not have paid that $10,000. He said, you're forgiven. Can you imagine the relief? And my boys witnessed him tell me that. And so I now need to extend forgiveness to lots of other people because I've been forgiven much, and I need to forgive other people much. Zacchaeus knew this feeling. He was forgiven of his sins, and he was willing to make restitution. He was willing to put those things to rest that were in the way. And I believe that he continued to be sensitive to the Spirit of God because we make one thing right and there's an unload. We're ready to move on to the next thing and to unload that so that our relationship with God can be just clear. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing like living clear. Nothing to hide. You don't need to tell everybody about everything, but you need to make it right with God and, and, and make it right with the appropriate people. There's nothing like living a life that says, I'm now free, I'm ready to serve the Lord with everything I have. I believe Zacchaeus was that kind of man. And Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation. Come to this house. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Jesus found Zacchaeus in that tree. He knew all about him. He took him to his house. And they talked about sin perhaps web over sin together. And Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, I'm going to go and make things right. I wish I knew the rest of the story of Zacchaeus. I wish I knew what else he did to keep his Christian life vibrant. But I'm going to suggest to you tonight five disciplines that we're going to need to keep our life vibrant. Simple things. Be in this book. 
be in this book. So when you read this and you see a sin to avoid, you do it. You avoid it. When you see a promise to keep, okay, I can keep that. I can accept that. A command to keep, yep, I can keep that. And we find instruction every day. This book will keep us from sin or sin will keep us from this book. If this isn't our best friend, we're going to waver all over the place. We're going to get in the mire and in the depth of what everybody else thinks instead of what God thinks. The discipline of Bible reading has to be there. And you can read your Bible through in 72 hours. You don't have to do it. But if you want to know what Jesus thinks, if you don't know what God thinks, you should start to dig in. I believe you are, but I'm just saying, I think Zacchaeus dug in. Money had been his priority before, it's obvious, but Jesus brought him to his senses about where he was. How about prayer and fasting? Do you think that's a discipline that he worked on in his Christian life? Do you think he went to the temple and prayed? Do you think he became a part of the synagogue again, if that truly was that he would have been not allowed to be in the synagogue before as a publican? Remember, it says he was a chief publican. He was in charge of other people. Prayer. Asking God for guidance. Fasting, saying, God, I seriously need to know an answer. Have you fasted? What has it done for you? It says to God, I want an answer before I want food. It's a discipline everyone should try. Not everyone can fast 40 days. Not everyone can fast 10 days or two days. But I want to tell you, when you get over the third day, it gets easier. If you're really seeking God, if you're really seeking God, he invites us to fast. He invites us to pray. If we want to see a change in someone's life, fast and pray about it. How about the discipline of good attitudes? How about the discipline along with that of praising, singing? Sometimes I come downstairs for my devotions and my study, and I don't really feel like opening my Bible right at the moment. So I pull a songbook off the shelf, and I start to sing. Not because I feel like singing, but I start to sing. And soon I have within me the truths of God's word, and I'm ready to have my real devotions. How about that of giving of my resources as was in the devotional? 
Zacchaeus did that. There's something about giving of resources that does something for our covetous nature. Every time there's an offering plate passed, I like to put something in. For me, not because the church needs it, not because God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills can't work without my money, but it does something to remind me that God gave me the strength to earn this. It's his. And it takes a little bit of that covetous nature of just wanting more for myself. I see Zacchaeus as being a person who showed evidence of conversion by being ready to give just beyond, even beyond what he did here in this initial restitution process. I wonder if Zacchaeus gave up being a tax collector. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and be a tax collector. No. But I'm saying you can't be a Christian and be a dishonest tax collector. And so he, as a tax collector, probably had a lot of opportunity to see who was really poor and maybe give and maybe even go and serve and say, hey, look, I'm going to come to your house tonight and I'm going to help cut some firewood or whatever it is. The conversion of Zacchaeus is clear here. There's not a question in my mind that this man made a difference in the kingdom of God. His neighbors all knew that he was a different person. Do people know that I'm walking with the Lord? Do people know that I care about them? That I care about helping them in their spiritual journey? The Son of Man come to seek and to save that which is lost. Do we as believers have the responsibility in the place of Jesus to seek those who are lost? How big was Zacchaeus? How big are you? How big am I? Have you been changed that people know there's a change? Are you assured that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Are you living, working, walking in the power in the presence of the Lord. Often I look at the conversion of Nicodemus. But tonight I chose Zacchaeus. Partly because of the restitution and the assurance that his life was changed. If there's anything we should ask ourselves tonight is there anything that's left un, undone, not made right with someone? Maybe we backed our car into their mailbox and then didn't tell them. 
Maybe we broke one of their tools and returned it without telling them it was broken. Maybe there's something that we should go back to someone and say, I'm sorry. This is too long, but it's on my mind. It's in revival meetings and a man in his 70s responded to the invitation to go make something right. He told me several times since when I meet him at some meeting, he's from Pennsylvania, I'm from New York, but he says to me different times, he says, Dale, what was on my mind for some 60 years has been laid to rest. When he was a boy in a one-room school, they were playing in the basement at recess, and he took his friend's ball right as the bell rang to go up and cl start class, and he bounced the ball one last time, and it went up and got caught in the heat ducts. And when they went upstairs to start class, the teacher said, does anyone know where Johnny's ball is? He didn't say anything. Johnny never, ever knew where his ball was. This man went back as a 70-some-year-old man and found Johnny. I don't remember his real name, but found this man and told him and asked for forgiveness. He could live free. He says, Dale, every time I see you, I think of that ball, but every time in between, I don't think of that ball anymore because it's gone. I said to him, wouldn't it be fun to go back to that school and see if that ball's still up there? <laughs> It'd be a lot of fun. My mother is 88 years old, and when she was 82, I believe it was, a man came to her. He had, she hadn't seen him for a long time. He went to school with her when she was in fifth grade, I believe. And he said, Marion, can I see your right wrist? So she held out her wrist. He says, you see that spot right there? When we were in fifth grade, I turned around and I poked you with a pencil. And that's what's left that mark on there all those years. My mom said, why? Well, I, I forgot that you did that. I always wondered where that mark, I had forgotten where that mark came from. I said, I just, that mark is there today. But that man went back and made it right. The Spirit of God speaks in specifics. And he'll tell us. And if we want to go on with God, we become a Zacchaeus. A person that recognizes something needs to be taken care of. And we go and do it. And then we continue in these disciplines of the Christian life. Our Bible reading so that we're reminded when there's something that's stated in the Scripture... We heed it, we take warning from it, we spend time with God saying, search me if there's anything in my life that needs to be taken care of. Revival meeting is just putting all the stuff in the past. That's what it really is. I mentioned Monday night, sin's the only thing that keeps us from being revived or going on. And we all are so frail. I don't want to ever shoot a blue, tur blue heron again. I, I do know what turkeys look like, honestly, I do. <laughs> I know what they look like. 
But my mind would just want a, a turkey. What? But we need to make restitution so that we can live an abundant life. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, visit us where we need to be visited. Take us to the recesses of our heart if there's something there that needs to be brought out and we need to make restitution for. Break down our pride. Help us to go back and say, look, I'm sorry. This happened back there. I am thinking about it, and I want to get it off my mind. I want to be free in my spirit, and I am sorry. God, thank you for this congregation of people. Bless them as they search their lives through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's have a song. Not necessarily an invitation song, just a song to close the service tonight. Jesus the Lamb.